With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm talking to you from, where am I talking to you from? I'm talking to you from the Omni Hotel, brand spanking new hotel here in Oklahoma City. Um, I had a speech, my first paid speech, which, believe you me, I can use the money, um, since the end of the pandemic. Um, I spoke at the, for the Oklahoma chamber of commerce at, um, nicer bunch of people you'll never meet by the way. Um, and it was at the cowboy museum, which I really wanted to check out, but because I am nothing, if not a servant to, uh, the dispatch community, I left there rather than do the little tour. So I could write the G file, which I just finished. Um, I think, um, you know, if you grade it on the curve of uh, writing quickly and off the cuff. I think it came out pretty well. Um, but I'll leave that to others to opine about. And, um, we're not doing an interview or a conversation today because scheduling stuff was a hot mess. And I got to get up at four 30 in the morning to get a flight home. Uh, cause, uh, flights out of Oklahoma city to DC are complicated. So instead I thought I'd do another one of these um, sort of standalone set piece things, which at some point will come up with a better name than supplemental um, rather than just doing riffing on punditry because my brain's not there. And um, but I got the idea of doing this. Um, basically what I'm doing is going to read a big chunk from tyranny cliches, but also insert some other stuff as well. Um, at least that's the plan. We'll see how it goes. Um, I got the idea of doing this on this podcast on the idea of church and state in part because of the brouhaha with Joe Biden and abortion. And I think it's a kind of a fascinating topic. You know, uh, my, uh, my positions on Catholicism and on Abortion should be taken with whatever grains of salt people have according to their priors about such things. I am not a Catholic. I am um, a pretty dramatically pro-Catholic person. Um, I married one. I worked for a historically, um, it wasn't explicitly a Catholic magazine, but William F. Buckley's National Review was very, very steeped in Catholicism stuff. Some of my Closest friends, you know, Ramesh Panuru, um, most, and Catherine Lopez are pretty famously Catholic. And, um, and my position on abortion is, is 
is complicated if you're a certain kind of pro-lifer um, or a certain kind of, I guess, pro-choicer, for want of a better term, insofar as it annoys people a lot when I tell people I'm, for the most part, pro-life. And the reason why it bothers people is for very obvious and, and mostly good faith reasons. People seem to, th- people think that it's a binary thing. Either you are pro-life or you're not. And, you know, and I get that argument. And I'll, I would note that even among ardent pro-lifers, there is some, um, there's some uh, discrepancies in points of view. There are some very serious pro-life Catholics that want, you know, exception would allow for exceptions of, of rape and incest and whatnot. And there are others who wouldn't. And, um, um, I can find the logic of both positions persuasive given certain contexts, but my own views have less to do with that kind of thing than they have to do with the fact that, um, I come to this with a certain amount of epistemological, um, humility on it insofar as I think that the I'll just be honest, you know, the, the science is pretty persuasive to me that life basically begins with the fertilization. Um, that's basically what medical textbooks say. Um, but at the same time, and so I find that intellectually persuasive, but I'm just being honest with you. I don't find it emotionally, um, as persuasive in the sense that it doesn't ping my conscience in the same way that say late term abortion does. Um, I, being a person of fairly secular tastes, I cannot muster the same moral outrage about, um, a, an aborted, you know, uh, what's the term blastocyst or, you know, fertilized egg moments after fertilization than I can for what is by all accounts, (laughs) by all normal accounts, a fully realized human baby that just hasn't been fully delivered yet. And I know passions get really high on this stuff among the the pro-choice crowd, but I think Patrick Buchanan, not Patrick Buchanan, um, Patrick Moynihan was right when he said that, you know, that certain forms of partial birth abortion, which yes, are very rare, um, amount to infanticide. And I, and, and I think they do. And we had that whole, uh, screaming match about, uh, what was it? The governor of Virginia, Northam, you know, and some people are making the case that, um, you know, you can have, uh, you know, it was a, it was a state legislator who, you know, argued for allowing abortion after delivery, which to me is just a moral, obvious, moral bright line. And so my point is, is that I, I find a lot of the, ar- the pro-life arguments about, um, about, it being a human being, um, to be persuasive from conception. And one of the reasons, and so intellectually I am pro-life in the sense that I don't like the idea of the state, um, deciding who is and who is not a human being, um, beyond the obvious sort of a chair is not a human being, a dog is not a human being. Um, but if there is a rational, reasonable argument for um, an entity to be called a human being, then you should err on the side of the state protecting it rather than not. And I have, I have great sympathy for a lot of the, the problems that, you know, the pro-life position creates or perceived problems that are, are live felt problems that, you know, being a, 
that a pro-life policy would create for women. I'm the father of a daughter. I understand, you know, there, there, there are things I understand about all of that. And that's why I'm very conflicted about things like the morning after pill. It does not fill me with rage the way a third trimester abortion does um, for, I think, reasons that resonate with a lot of people. And this is one of the problems that we get into with um, um, the regime of Roe v. Wade and Doe, um, the companion ruling, because it basically holds, as upheld by Casey, I guess, that um, abortion um, is, as a, as a matter of con- the Constitution, is legal throughout the entire preg- pregnancy. And so you'll find this thing where you know, Europeans who don't really grasp uh, American politics very well, they'll often ask, you know, why are you guys so obsessed with abortion? That's crazy. It's, it's destroying your politics and all these kinds of things. And I agree that it's, it's been terrible for our politics. This row was a bad decision for reasons I agree entirely with Ruth Bader Ginsburg on. Um, it, it short-circuited a process that would have allowed us to reach a, a social compromise and essentially created the pro-life movement out of whole cloth. Um, but when you talk to these Europeans about it and you say, um, well, you do realize that according to Roe and Doe, that abortion is uh, constitutionally permissible up through, um, you know, two seconds before delivery. And they're like, my God, that's barbaric. And so most, you know, most democracies, um, you know, progressive, nice welfare state, you know, run democracies, they have reasonable restrictions, which are that it's, it's pretty easy to get an abortion in the first trimester. It gets more difficult after that. And then in the third trimester, it's really, really hard or impossible unless you have these exceptions for like the life of the mother and all that. So anyway, if I didn't bring up all this stuff, people would say, oh, you're just hiding. So that's where I come down on this. I've, believe me, I've had the arguments from all sides. Um, and I understand that if you have um, a, come from a certain consistent um, point of view on either side of the question, my, my muddling position is really unsatisfactory to a lot of people. Believe me, I, I've been made, made abundantly aware of this. But what I find, you know, what, what gave me the idea about talking about this was, um, what's his name? A Biden. Um, you know, he's, he's only the second Catholic president. And his position on abortion is starkly at odds with um, the Catholic Church. And there's this big push from, you know, parts of the Catholic Church to deny him communion or, and all that stuff. And I'm not going to get into the theological weeds about all of that. But a friend of mine, I'm not sure if he wants me to name him, so I won't. But my guess is he would be fine with me naming him. I just, I'll just give him credit. He pointed out to me the other day that there's a, there's a deep and kind of pernicious irony in all of this insofar as. Joe Biden, in effect, wants a conscience exception to the church's te- the church's teaching on abortion, um, and that's not really how it works with the Catholic Church. I don't think I'm on shaky ground there. Um, but the funny thing about it is that the uh, the Biden administration and liberalism and the Democratic Party, however you want to put it wants to deny people conscious exception, conscience exceptions when it comes to all sorts of public policy questions. And um, there's, a, there's a real tension there, and I thought it was sort of worth 
exploring a little bit. So let me start with um, reading some stuff. I don't know how long I'll go from this before I jump ship, but I at least want to get to the stuff about John Kerry. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll begin. The principle of separation of church and state is as rooted in ideological precept as any that exists, whether you call it ideological or not. So one of the things you just know for the context in, in tyranny of cliches, uh, a big chunk of the book is dedicated to the idea of defending ideology rightly understood. And we don't need to get in the weeds of all of that, but that's what the reference to ideology is about. If you don't think so, I'll read that again. The principle of separation of church and state is as rooted an ideological precept as any that exists, whether you call it ideological or not. If you don't think so, it's probably because you already agree with the principle. Indeed, pretty much every position regarding the role of religion in society is seen as ideological by those who hold the opposing position. Obviously, if you're a member of the Christian coalition, you probably think the ACLU is ideologically extremist and vice versa. But increasingly, what counts for religious, quote unquote, extremism is merely what until very, very recently was considered normal. For example, the American atheists sued over the installation of a of the 9-11 cross, a cross-shaped beam found at Ground Zero at the National September 11th Memorial and Museum, because, quote, any government enshrinement of the cross was an impermissible mingling of church and state, unquote. Anyone thinking otherwise must have overindulged in the church wine, reasoned the American atheists, because, quote, the, the World Trade Center cross has become a Christian icon. It has been blessed by so-called holy men and presented as a reminder that their God, who couldn't be bothered to stop the Muslim terrorists to prevent 3,000 people from being killed in his name, cared only enough to bestow upon us some rubble that resembled a cross. It's a truly ridiculous assertion, unquote. Needless to say, I find that kind of smug crap really annoying. The truth is that both the ACLU and the Christian Coalition are more ideologically similar than, you, than they are different. In any place in the world where freedom of conscience doesn't exist, Iran comes to mind, the general notion that we should be free, free to worship as we please is greeted as profoundly and ideologically radical. The space between our alleged religious fanatics and our supposed atheistic fanatics is shockingly small. That's because our arguments are the details of it. That's because our arguments are about the details of implementing a shared principle. The separation of church and state has its roots in the West, with Jesus' injunction to, quote, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and only those things, it should be noted. But it took millennia of bloodshed and social upheaval for the idea to be translated into the recognizable practice we have today. When the Roman Empire fell in the West, the sole seat of political authority transferred to Constantinople. But the religious authority remained in Rome though the Eastern Orthodox would say more accurately that it's split. This meant that emperors and kings retained secular power in the West, but the church was still the ultimate moral authority. For instance, when the emperor Theodosius slaughtered the Thessalonians, Archbishop Ambrose of of Milan was so repulsed that he refused to give the emperor holy communion. No fair, I'm paraphrasing, the emperor cried. Insisting that David had done worse in the Bible, Ambrose replied, you have imitated David in his crime, then imitate him in, repent- in his repentance. 
And so off and on for eight months, the most powerful ruler in the, in the entire world mimicked the biblical David, dressing in rags like a beggar in order to plea for forgiveness outside Ambrose's cathedral. One wonders if John Kerry would have submitted to a similar penance back in 2004 when bishops were threatening to refuse him communion should he pr present himself at the rail. Over time, the papacy's moral authority increased. Pope Leo III may have been forced to anoint Charlemagne as Rome's emperor, but by doing so, he also cemented the notion that even kings were answerable to a higher authority. When Emperor Henry IV challenged Pope Gregory VII's power of investiture, he ended up, as legend has it, kneeling in the snows at Canossa for three days begging for forgiveness. But the Protestant Reformation fractured Western Christianity and with it, the notion of a single source of temporal moral authority. Lutherans and Calvinists, contrary to a lot of glib commentary these days, were not moderates, but ardent believers who wanted to overthrow the worldliness of the Catholic Church and replace it with more austere religious authority. And I reference, say, I reference, see chapter 21, the Catholic Church. Bloody religious wars ensued, with brutal massacres in the streets of European capitals. Quote, in 1555, writes James Q. Wilson, the Peace of Augsburg settled the religious wars briefly with the phrase, Cuius regio eus religio, meaning that people in each state or principality would have the religion of their ruler. If you didn't like your prince's religion, you had to move elsewhere, unquote. The toothpaste was now out of the tube. A riot of new denominations spread across Europe, Anabaptists, Quakers, Winglians, etc. More wars and social turmoil racked Europe for the better part of a century. The Peace of Westphalia advanced the cause of religious liberty by carving out a few ideological and political harbors for freedom of conscience. In the words of C.V. Wedgwood, the essential futility of putting the beliefs of the mind to the judgment of the sword was finally pecking its way into the European mind. But the battle to clear space for the free exercise of conscience hardly ended there. Oliver Cromwell led a Presbyterian rebellion against the throne, but he understood that he didn't have the power to force his faith on all of his countrymen, and that trying to do so would be a fatal overreach. He needed to recruit adherents of other faiths to his cause. To this end, he convinced Parliament to respect liberty for, quote, all who fear God, unquote. He even took tentative steps to welcome back the persecuted and exiled Jews of England. Then came the bloody trading of blows, faith, and thrones that marked the late 17th century. Ultimately, Parliament passed the Toleration Act, permitting believers of various Protestant faiths to follow their religion so long as their loyalty to the crown, their loyalty to the crown was not in doubt. Even then, writes Wilson, their members still could not hold government office, but at least they would not be hanged. Catholics and Unitarians, meanwhile, were not formally protected by law, but the English increasingly left them alone too. All right, I'll take a break from the text here for two seconds. Something I didn't write about here, but I did write about a lot in Suicide of the West, was an important part of this process. You know, um, John Locke in his was it Notes on Toleration, I think that's the title. Um, he makes an impassioned case for religious pluralism and tolerance. 
and all of these things. Um, but he says, you know, we can't put people, you know, people's faith to the test of the sword and all this, all this kind of stuff, except for the Catholics, because there's no way we can let the Catholics have freedom of conscience because, you know, they, they're loyal to the Pope in Rome. And then when Jefferson gets to writing um, his notes, ah, it's, it's like also notes of toleration. I'm doing this from memory. But for Virginia, he takes the logic of Locke and carries it to its logical conclusion, which is to say, he says, not only should Catholics have equal rights um, in America or in Virginia, uh, so should Hindus and Jews and even atheists. Um, and you know, this I think this is a really important point to make because it's the unfolding of a lot of these ideas over time that is so important. I write about this in the G file a little bit. You know, you can you can blast the the American founding for coming short of the ideal. But the important point is, is that were it not for the American founding, we wouldn't even have a concept of what that ideal is. You know, the people who are obsessed with human rights, inclusion, diversity, and all these kinds of things, they are borrowing essentially a yardstick, as I put it in the G-File, they're borrowing a yardstick bequeathed to them by the founders, and they're using it as a cudgel to beat up the American founding. Um, and this process of religious tolerance, which dates back to, you know, Jesus rendering unto Caesar is part of an unfolding process. And we should be appreciative of the advances and the progress that was made rather than condemn prior generations and prior eras for failing to reach, you know, the, the charter of the United Federation of planets prematurely or, or earlier or whatever. So anyway. Okay, so back to the text. Um, the story goes on. Galileo had his battles with the church in Italy a half century earlier. The Puritans came to America to escape religious persecution. And again, these, you know, the Puritans were not religious moderate, moderates. I say in the text here, just ask the women who burned at Salem. Pretty sure they hanged. That was a mistake in the text. But regardless, the, the Puritans were devout believers who craved the room to practice their religion as their consciences dictated. Religious pluralism in colonial America continued to evolve. Maryland for Catholics, Georgia for Baptists, Massachusetts for Red Sox fans, and so on. The founders barred the establishment of religion by the federal government in no small part because they remembered the repression of minority sects under the state church of England. But they saw no problem with the various American states establishing their own official churches. And they certainly had no objection to official displays of religiosity. One of the first acts by the new Congress was to hire a chaplain. Until well into the 19th century, the largest weekly church service in the United States took place in the U.S. Capitol building. At the request of President Jefferson, music was provided at federal expense by the United States Marine Band. Today, you could argue, and if you don't, I will, that the project of cleansing religion from the public square has gone too far. Whereas we used to have official national days of prayer and fasting, now we're almost at the point where we have a constitutional crisis if a kid says, God bless you, to a sneezing public school teacher. Whatever the right balance is between church and state, the point is that our overwhelming commitment to religious freedom isn't some purely abstract notion yanked out of a seminar discussion. As we've seen, whereas many academic debates can be over how many angels are on the head of a pin, wait, sorry, that's a theological equation. How about how many different kinds of evil are dead white European men? 
Ideological debates are not impractical distractions. They get at the core of what kind of civilization we want to live in. And there is no way to wall off religion from those debates. Yes, we can separate, to one extent or another, the role of religion in our society, but it's impossible to separate the role of religion or the lack of it in our own hearts. This is true at a very practical level insofar as it is impossible to know what someone's true motivations for any decision are. We can only judge people by the arguments that they make and the decisions that they take. But it's also true at a very high philosophical level. It is beyond absurd to say that your religious faith informs your conception of the cosmos and your place in it, morality and human purpose, but then also to say that your religious faith will have nothing whatsoever to do with your decision-making as an elected official. This does not mean that you have to impose your religious views on others. John F. Kennedy confronted the issue of his Catholicism head-on and said it would not bind him to policies he deemed contrary to American interests. One can certainly gainsay some of his decisions, but most reasonable people would have a hard time detecting a relentlessly pro-Catholic bias. One might even ask, so what if a politician did have a pro-religion bias? I'm not talking about the unconstitutional imposition of Sharia law or kosher laws for everyone, but what if a Catholic president had a soft spot for the wonderful work that parochial schools do? Or if a Druid president had a keen interest in forestry? Save the trees, for they are our brothers and sisters. If a politician runs openly and honestly on his values, we should not be scandalized when those values inform his decision-making, and we should not be surprised that his values are informed by his religion. In short, there's nothing essentially, fundamentally wrong with religion guiding your politics. Letting your politics guide your religion is another matter altogether. Quote, I think that everything you do in public life has to be guided by your faith, affected by your faith, but without transferring it in any official way to other people. Senator John Kerry explained during the third presidential debate in 2004, quote, I believe that I can't legislate or transfer to another American citizen my article of faith. What is an article of faith for me is not something that I can legislate on somebody who doesn't share that article of faith, unquote. Now, that sounds reasonable enough, right? It's not how I would frame the issue, but it's a defensible position to be sure. Not surprisingly, this answer came up in the context of abortion. It is a dogmatic article of faith among many staunch defenders of abortion rights that abortion foes are driven by religion, and therefore banning abortion is an unjust religious imposition. Keep your rosaries off my ovaries and all of that. And ever since Mario Cuomo's famous Notre Dame speech, Democratic politicians have been invoking the, quote, Cuomo defense. In short, it says you can be personally pro-life and still publicly enforce pro-choice policies. I find this to be a theological mess, but it is not my place to criticize others about their religious convictions. But the whole thing comes off the rails of logic when Kerry says that his religious conviction is, quote, why I fight poverty. That's why I fight to clean up the environment and protect this earth. That's why I fight for equality and justice. All of those things come out of that fundamental teaching and, and belief of faith, unquote, 
Over and over during the campaign, he zinged President Bush, or seemed to think he was zinging him, by pointing out that one must, quote, demonstrate faith with deeds, unquote. And these were Kerry's deeds. But wait a second. Kerry says his religious faith drives him to fight for the poor and the environment and all of that stuff. But when it comes to abortion, he suddenly cannot impose an article of his faith? Really? I understand why abortion rights activists see pro-life policies as, as an imposition of faith. And I can see why a fetus would feel much the same way about pro-choice policies if he or she had a chance to live. But how are environmental or anti-poverty policies driven by faith not an imposition of faith? If your faith tells you to pass often misguided environmental regulations that cost a father his job or a community its livelihood, you are making quite an imposition on others. Equality in John Kerry's formulation means denying some people opportunities for the benefit of others. And justice, however defined, usually involves guys with guns, courts, judges, prosecutors, and the like, all of whom are empowered by the state to use violence, even to kill you if necessary. Those sound like impositions to me. Indeed, as libertarians are fond of pointing out, pretty much all laws come with the implicit threat of violence. Don't believe me? Refuse to obey even the most picayune law, and eventually a man in uniform with a gun on his hip is going to come to talk to you about it. President Obama is explicit in his overt claims that he is driven by a modern-day social gospel quest for social justice. One of his standard lines is that he is fulfilling the biblical injunction to be our brother's and our sister's keeper. By the way, there is no such injunction. The only time the phrase brother's keeper appears is when Cain is trying sarcastically to dodge a murder rap. It's true. Like, you know, it says, when he's asked, where's your brother? He says, hey, am I my brother's keeper? Um, that's not an, a biblical injunction to be your brother's keeper. Anyway, sorry. Some argue that Matthew 2540 is what Obama and other liberals are getting at. Quote, verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me, unquote. But that's not a commandment to be your fellow man's keeper. Keepers keep animals. Moreover, even if you're generous in how you interpret all this, I'm unaware of any passage in the Hebrew or Christian Bibles where God says that doing good to others means supporting bloated, inefficient, and often counterproductive government programs. Regardless, the point is that Obama believes the Bible tells him to push his agenda. Is that not an imposition of his faith? In his acceptance speech at the Democratic Convention in 2008, he artfully replaced the idea of the American dream, individual opportunity, the pursuit of happiness, with the century-old progressive nostrum of, quote, America's promise, unquote. At times, his rhetoric seemed lifted straight out of the pages of Herbert Crowley's Promise of American Life. But to his credit, Herbert Crowley was honest about the fact that the two visions are in fundamental opposition. The idea behind Crowley's promise of American life was to move the country beyond the outdated 19th century notions of rugged individualism in pursuit of the American dream. And it was an explicitly Christian enterprise. It was certainly the mission of the social gospel ministers like Walter Rauschenbusch, um, but more revealingly, it was also the mission of the technocratic progressive economists as well, Richard Ely, 
I think it's Eli, guys. I, every time I say Eli, someone says, no, it's Eli. But and every time I say it's Eli, they say it's no, it's Eli. But I'm going to go with Eli. Uh, Richard Eli, by the way, who's an obsession of mine as an intellectual figure. Um, one more time, Richard Eli, the leader of the University of Wisconsin progressives during their heyday and the founder of the American Economic Association, still the leading professional organization for American economists. Ely was the foremost lay leader of what was called Christian socialism or Christian sociology. Ely believed and taught that every aspect of life should have Christianity injected into it. He held that Christians made a fundamental error by holding that salvation lies in the next life. When Jesus says that his kingdom is, quote, not of this world, the correct translation, according to Ely, is not of this age. And it was Ely's core conviction that the age of salvation could be reached through the judicious application of welfare state policies. He wrote in Social Aspects of Christianity, quote, I take this as my thesis. Christianity is primarily concerned with this world, and it is the mission of Christianity to bring to pass here a kingdom of righteousness and to rescue from the evil one and redeem all our social relations, unquote. Woodrow Wilson shared this vision. Quote, there is a mighty task before us, and it welds us together, he said at a YMCA conference. YMCA, remember, was Young Men's Christian Association back when the Christian meant something. He said, it is to make the United States a mighty Christian nation and to Christianize the world. While there were some secular progressives, as a social movement, it is almost impossible to speak of progressivism as anything other than a fundamentally Christian movement. And it sought to smash what we today would call the wall between church and state. Ellie, for instance, hated the practice of seeing the world as, quote, divided into things sacred and things secular and asserted that, quote, to a Christian, all things must be sacred, his business as well as his church, unquote. The American Economic Association, which initially brimmed with over 60 ministers as members, was to be a fundamentally religious organization that imbued all of its analysis and recommendations with a Christian vision that rejected laissez-faire economics as sinful and cruel. Quote, God works through the state in carrying out his purpose more universally than through any other institution, Ellie wrote. It is, quote, religious in its essence and a mighty force in furthering God's kingdom and establishing righteous relations, unquote. So profound was the progressive insistence that there should be no demarcation between religion and politics that social gospel minister Walter Rauschenbusch proclaimed, by the way, Walter Rauschenbusch, I believe, is uh, the, histor the progressive historian Richard Rorty's uh, grandfather. Anyway, so profound was the progressive insistence that there should be no demarcation between religion and politics that social gospel minister Walter Rauschenbusch proclaimed that if God couldn't be a liberal progressive, then we needed a new God entirely. Quote, unless the ideal social order can supply men with food, warmth, and comfort more efficiently than our present economic order, Rauschenbusch warned in his 1912 treatise, Christianizing the Social Crisis, quote, back we shall go to capitalism. Therefore, he said, quote, the God that answereth by low food prices, let him be God. 
Taken seriously, this remains the essence of liberal political theology. Unfortunately, liberalism can no longer say so clearly. Bookless, liberalism lacks the vocabulary and the faith to connect these dots any longer. The God of lower food prices may not be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, nor that of the Jews or Muhammad, but the Jedi-like force of all good things is a liberal, and violating that faith is a sin. Or as Senator Obama put it when he was asked, what is sin? Sin, he explained, is, quote, being out of alignment with my values, unquote. Just so. Now, I'm sorry to do memory lane stuff about Barack Obama. That's the whole chapter. Um, I just think this stuff is interesting, and we've touched on it a bunch on the podcast um, about, um, about religion. I have a whole slew of things to say about political religion and the philosopher Eric Vigellin and scientism and all these kinds of things, but that'll wait for another day. The point is, is that I think one of the real handicaps that progressivism or liberalism has is its inability to connect its positions with a higher conception of morality. Um, and at the same time, it wants to borrow the, the, the logic and rhetoric of essentially theologically based morality for its own ends without acknowledging the role that theology and religion played in creating those moral concepts. Um, you know, by what, by, by, by what yardstick is um, a budget, a moral document, unless you have a conception of morality that essentially comes maybe in an attenuated form, but comes from, you know, Western religious or just religious concepts. Um, and this doesn't mean, look, I mean, this is being progressives are bad people. I'm not someone who thinks that you have to be super religious. I'm certainly not super religious to be a moral and decent person. But if you want to sort of think clearly about these things, you have to start asking these questions about where does your morality come from? And to say that religious people can't bring, can't have their religion inform their moral approach to things um, is a real stolen base because just because you don't have a fleshed out uh, theological worldview that gets deep into the sort of you know, the true nature of man and, 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 and epistemology and why are we here and all these kinds of things doesn't mean you don't have one. It just means you haven't examined it. You haven't thought it through. And therefore you are going to be much blinder to the inconsistencies that you have. And the simple fact is, is that if you think that, um, the sort of the, the a religious or non-religious or, or, or sort of cafeteria, um, pick your own uh, issues off the menu kind of form of religious politics that liberals bring to the table is, is good and fine. That's, that's one thing. But there is no, you can't then harken back to this idea of the separation of, of church and state and, and how outrageous it is to impose your religious values when it comes to an issue like abortion the the position you know the if if you're going to say that you can that that you know the getting rid of the Hyde amendment or banning you know gay adoptions um or forcing the poor baker to make you know now transgender reveal party cakes if you're saying that the state has the the right and ability to impose 
it's moral, a certain moral point of view um, for that stuff. Uh, to say that you can't impose school prayer because that comes from religion um, just doesn't make sense logically. And I think it's sort of a hot mess. And I think this is one of the reasons that one of the things that arouses a lot of animosity and resentment among religious people, because they're told they can't bring their morality to bear because they're honest about where their morality comes from. And the left gets to say, well, we're, you know, we're not imposing, you know, any religious belief. We're just imposing our morality. But since our morality is derived from, you know, secular bumper stickers or something, we should have a free hand doing it. And it just doesn't work that way because again, you can't, um, you can't ultimately know why people, um, are motivated by what they're doing. In fact, I believe John Kerry and Joe Biden that they think that their faith tells them that they have to do more for poor people. I think that's a perfectly fine thing for them to say. I think it's a perfectly fine thing for them to campaign on. Um, and it's amazing that the double standard allows them to say that kind of stuff. But when it comes to conservatives, if you, if you make an argument based on science and there are some, again, I think the science is much more persuasive on the pro-life side. Um, if you make the arguments based on science, they accuse you of secretly being motivated by other things. And if you actually admit that you are motivated by other things, they say that's inherently disqualifying. Um, it's sort of like that Seinfeld where because Jerry admitted that he was returning the jacket for spite, it meant that he couldn't do it. Um, I think creating a political and moral culture where people have to hide their most deeply held convictions and why they're doing things is not a healthy one for the left or the right. So anyway, that's where I'm coming from on this. I, I hope people like this. I apologize if they don't. I never know with this stuff. Um, but there was just no way to do anything else. And I just didn't want to um, hunt and peck and meander um, during stream of consciousness stuff. I'll save that for Friday. So um, with that, thanks for tuning in. And um, if you can give us some nice reviews at uh, iTunes and other places, that would be great. Um, if you, um, you know, if you want to pick fights with me, better place to do that is in the comment section at, at the dispatch. Of course, you have to be a paid member to do that. And, um, um, and believe me, I get a lot of grief from people, um, from subscribers and, uh, I don't necessarily agree with a lot of the grief that I get. Um, but, uh, we have, we have a broadly tolerant view about letting people have robust conversations on there. And I try not to Bigfoot in and, 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 um, and, you know, uh, join the fray too often, but I do look at them quite a bit. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the kind of meandering pointless wandering that you would have gotten if I started from scratch, just going off the top of my head. Um, so again, thanks for listening. Thanks for your indulgence. No pun intended. And I will, um, I'll see you next time. Yeah. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.